where great ideas flow together. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, the podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. I'm Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our beautiful mountain campus. I think that what connects us both for her is, among many things, is, is wonder. On one side, wonder leads to the search for an understanding of all the detailed connections. And in another place of her mind, another place for experience, wonder leads to an intuition of the largeness of our experience, larger mystery that's beyond our conceptual or scientific understanding. You just heard the voice of Bob Baker, professor of English, talking about his student, Rebecca Durham, one of the Bertha Morton Graduate Student Scholarship winners for 22-23. This episode is part of a series recognizing the achievements of some of our outstanding graduate students. The Bertha Morton Award, named for a great Montanan who dedicated her life to public service, was endowed to support graduate students by recognizing the distinctive contributions they make in research, creative activity, and public service. Rebecca is a student in UM's Doctorate of Interdisciplinary Studies, completing a dissertation that blends her scientific interests and her poetic talent. She has published numerous research articles in botany, but has also completed an MFA in poetry and published several poetry chapbooks. In this episode, she reads poems from her new book, and we talk about how she blends those identities in her work, which includes poetry, video, and analytical writing about the way poetry conveys scientific ideas. We're proud to share her graduate story with listeners. Enjoy the flow. This is a passage from my poem entitled, It's September and We. We do not speak of verdure or senescence in these rain-scoured days. Droplets beat onto hollowing columns, conduct the hum of what follows. Remembering the heat, we linger by the river, watch water need light. Welcome to Confluence. Thanks, Ashby. So it's so good to see you and celebrating in this sequence Bertha Morton winners, and that's why we've invited you here. But of course, we have so much more to talk about, especially your time in the DIS program, the Doctoral Independent uh, Interdisciplinary Studies program, which is a, a grad school grad program. And so we got a lot of fun things to talk about. But I wanted to start with your poem because I think, you know, I want listeners to hear this is one root or anchor of your identity, a really important one, that you're a poet. But you have these other things too. So tell us a little bit about why the DIS program was important to you and what brought you to it. Yeah, so the DIS program was really a perfect fit for me because I do have sort of two main threads of my career and educational interests. I have a master's degree in botany and a 20-year career in natural resources and also an MFA in creative writing poetry here at the university. And so it's really bringing together sort of my creative and artistic uh, interests and my interests in environmental issues and the natural world. Yeah, and I, and I think you know, you're such an incredibly important test case for us in, as an institution about 
what it might mean to produce a dissertation that's not a conventional prose dissertation, you know, making an argument or a case, but is bringing these two things together. So you're you're doing as part of your dissertation a creative project, but it has this analytical piece. How are you balancing that and as a writer and as a thinker, and how are they feeding each other, the research part of it and the coursework, which you've done coursework in environmental philosophy, um, in addition to continuing to deepen your understanding of both the science and the creative writing? So my um, dissertation is about the intersection of poetry and science. And so uh, as part of that dissertation, there's a creative manuscript where I'm really pressing the boundaries of how much science content can go into poetry and thinking about what it means to have information that it can be transferable and, and knowledge transfer, but yet still maintain sort of a level of creativity that makes it different from just informational prose. And then as part of the research part of that, I've looked at in the literature the relationship between science and poetry as um, what people have written about over the years. And then I'll also be doing an analytical um, sort of critical look at the creative manuscript, which will be looking at more poetic craft of what, you know, what are the things to consider when you are interested in creating poetry with uh, science content. Yeah, let's div- dig into that a little bit. I mean, so, so you use in science communication, information transfer is the key notion, right? That you're getting ideas across to the to, to the public that are rooted in valid science and are, are clear concepts. In your sort of survey and your study of poetry, what are you finding in past attempts to do that among poets? Is, are they, is it good science? Is it, is it rooted in good science? Right. I think there's, there's certainly, I don't want to, um, you know, make a blanket statement, but it seems like a lot of in the past poets have um, approached scientific ideas is more of like a isn't science neat sort mm. of thing. And it's not really, and they, they draw in maybe scientific metaphors or ideas, but there's not that much knowledge that you can glean like in a clear way. You know, it's occluded by the craft and it's brought in maybe in ideas or or the poets were really influenced by scientific ideas, but there's not, the information doesn't really come across. So that's kind of what I think feel like is the the majority of the historical relationship between science and poetry. And it's and, and, and in general, you know, so we're talking about science and poetry, but actually your specific sub area really is more ecosystems and natural systems. Are you looking also at, you know, because, you know, like in the field of science and literature, there's a lot of talk about complexity theory and AI and quantum physics, right? All of which have been the subject of deep literary study kind of in the fictional world because it has to do with whether or not those scientific paradigms have really produced a worldview shift. Like have they shifted our worldviews broadly enough? And of course, wherever there's a worldview shift, there are novelists, right? Novelists are trying to explore what that might mean. But but you're kind of more tightly interested in the domain of climate change and, and climate science or, or ecosystems? For this project, I've looked broadly at, at science and poetry. So not certainly my interests, environmental interests, in with, for my first two books of poetry, definitely more been eco-poetry and looking at environmental issues more deeply. But for this project, I'm looking at science and science information in general, so not particularly... Um, limited by just those topics. 
and I'm only looking at poetry. Certainly, you know, there's it's easier, I think, to have more knowledge transfer in fiction and nonfiction um, and creative writing in those uh, genres. But poetry, I think it's a, it's a different animal because poetry that really speaks to me is poetry that reaches like sort of a, a liminal space that, that sort of defies logic. And so that makes it, creates a lot of tension right. when you're trying to have information that a person can understand. Yeah, unless that information is marginality itself somehow, right? Like that somehow the scientific concept is pointing to complexity. And, you know, it seems like there are waves of scientific theory that kind of move one direction or another when I was in college and just after chaos theory was big, right? And I think the people in the humanities were really attracted to it because that metaphor pushes closer to a worldview they're already comfortable with, right? right? They're comfortable with irreducible complexity and things having these effects that can't be logically adduced. But then, you know, when we're doing, like I want my brain science to be really clear because if I go in with a brain injury, I want them to solve it. <laughs> you know, right, I want, I want right. them to make me better. I don't want them to put me on the margin, right? Completely. Yeah, so a moral or ethical issues, I guess, we want play and murkiness, but on like physical issues, we maybe want clarity. Right. I think that poetry with science content can have a really important role in science education because the more we are exposed to that information in a way where that we experience the world, I think it has a you know a greater chance of really um, being internalized in a, in a different way than just reading information does. Because you know science is like you said, it, it's very literal of how things are, and and we we don't want that included, and for many reasons. But on the other hand, artistic ways is really like that's how we see the world. We see the world in more complex ways than how science presents information where it's like this is how this is. And it's, yes, the sky is blue, but that's that's not how you see it. You, you feel it. And so I think with poetry that has scientific information, it's more akin to how we experience the world. And I think there's a lot of ways that, you know, people talk about interdisciplinary education and multidisciplinary avenues. And I think science in poetry can have a really great role in not only bringing more scientific information to the public, but also kind of enhancing science education. Interesting. Yeah. So enlightening the ideas. And I I would say, especially in your poetry, voice would be a crucial part of that. It's not just that we see the world complexly, but we we see it and feel it as humans, you know, with distinctive perspectives. And, And so voice is a crucial component of, I think, you know, I'm pushing this on you. You can say, no, it's not. But I think it is, right? It's important that you're seeing the world in a particular way. And I think that maybe that's a good segue, perhaps, to talk about some of the multimedia experiments that you've been engaged in. Um, I think about Bird Count, which appears in a written form, this collection. But then you're doing the video version of that same poem. Yeah, I, I had um, I was really fortunate to take film from Sean O'Brien here, which was an amazing class. Um, it really it's such a great I think for any anybody who wants to create poetry or or anything creative, it's just such a great thing to have in your toolbox to be able to um, create video poems. So I made that poem during that class, and it it's sort of set up as a, a letter to and for Thoreau. And um, I was able to present that video poem 
at the American Literature Association conference and uh, another like the ASLI Society Society for Literature and the Environment. Yes. 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 Good. And so, um, but that I think to have that added layer of visual, I think, is just a really and audio t- is a really great addition. Obviously, you know, I I love language and I love reading and I like words on a page, but you know, I think there's also something about our culture at this current moment that having a poem that's able to be shared in you know, a video poem, it just it also is, you're able to increase your audience in a way that having it in your book um, isn't able to do. And also just you can get to more of those feel feel spaces. Mm-hmm. You can present that and visually and orally in addition to the language. So it's just like a, a added layers. Uh, to the creative work, which can be a, a really powerful and a, a really great creative tool. I somewhat, you know, cynically, cynically is not the right word, but uh, opportunistically just want to make a pitch for the Sean O'Brien course. That is a grad school sponsored course that we think is really important. It's an interdisciplinary course so that you're taking that course alongside people from a bunch of different programs on campus. And we've offered it a few times now. We're offering it a third time this fall. And sometimes there'll be a wildlife biologist or a computer scientist in that class. So they're learning to tell stories too. And it kind of dovetails back to that first point about your project that there's a lot of scientists out there that actually want to think about different ways of communicating their science. And so Sean gives, this course is documentary short film production class and just soup to nuts in one semester, you're making a, a short film. They teach you all the techniques and support that process. So just wanted to get that little plug in there. Right. Yeah. It's it an amazing class. And once you once you learn those skills, you have them forever. And it, you, you're always able to communicate that way, whether it's creatively or, you know, getting out information or what have you. Yeah, and, and I, so I think you've occupied that feel space uh, in this really provocative way and, and powerful way, but you continue to work as a scientist. We were just talking about your work. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the ongoing work you do in botany in support of ongoing research projects. Yeah, so I've, I work at MPG Ranch. It's a conservation property, and I've worked there for the last 10 years, and I've had a number of different projects. I've worked... Uh, I'm interested in in biological soil crust restoration and research, so the living soil skin um, in arid and semi-arid environments uh, made up of lichens, moss, and cyanobacteria. And it's a really important component, and I have a collaboration with some folks at Northern Arizona University, and we're working on research and for restoration and understanding the, the ecology of that community and and I also am interested in plant phenology and the timing of, bi- which is phenology, just the timing of biological events. And Thank you for that and, definition yeah. for <laughs> our broad listeners. Yes. Yeah. So, and, you know, just, a, a, just, you know, plant ecology in general. I really just enjoy the native plants mostly. I mean, I, I also think on my, on a personal level, I, I just finished um, installing a native plant garden in my yard. And I think everyone can have a, really positive role in you know making the ecosystem a better place even if even in a suburban and urban setting 
Yeah, and, and I think you know the, the part of the reason I wanted to induce that story from you is it's just you know for listeners to hear you know that that this um, project, the big project you're engaged in, isn't some dabbling. I mean, you're, you're like I said, you had a 20 year career in science restoration. You continue to work in the field. It's not like it's something you're kind of a voyeur to. You're on the inside there. Right. Yeah. I've been really uh, fortunate to work on all sorts of research projects um, with different people. And that, that was my, you know, original background. I have a biology undergrad degree. And so, you know, being, doing creative work is something that's always been a part of my life, but I came kind of late into education um, for that. You know, I, the MFA was just, a, you know, maybe uh, five years ago. So, yeah, the education, like bringing it in, the creative education um, has been sort of a, a latter part of of my experience, but the, my science experience, and, and I worked as a, I worked all over the West um, doing a lot of seasonal work, right, when I was um, first out of school, which which was a really great opportunity. I, I was able to experience a lot of different ecosystems and work on a lot of different projects. And so, yeah, I've been really fortunate. I, I came to Montana to work, uh, do revegetation at Glacier National Park, and then I've stuck around, really fell in love with the area, and um, yeah, it's 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 been a really, I've been really fortunate to have worked outside most of my career, which <laughs> makes me happy. Yeah, outside in the body and and deeply inside in the mind, uh, you've you've got your work allows you to kind of get in touch with these complex emotions and ideas. Uh, yeah, your recent book, especially, you know, resonated for me. I work, of course, in the death, dying, and grief area, and so much of what you're thinking about in that book, in this collection, which with your indulgence, we'll have links to it in the show notes and, and maybe to the, the Walden as well, but I'm holding it up here. Loss slash less. Uh, hard to say orally, but you know, yeah. that, 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 there's <laughs> the, the diagonal slash in the title. You want to talk a little bit about that, like especially the title is with respect to feelings of grief and loss when your father passed away and you were instrumental, I guess, essential to shaping his story at the end of his life, uh, being part of that story. Yeah. So Lossless, I actually wrote it before, you know, before he passed away. So it um, really is really deep into uh, eco-melancholia, the grief of the destruction of, of the natural world. And a lot of the the poetry really sits with that feeling of, of that tension of like feeling really connected with the natural world and just feeling really that despair of its destruction and where things are right now and but it it does think grief grief can grief spills over you know there, all grief is shares certain feelings so yeah it, i actually got it accepted for publication right after he had passed away and I dedicated the book to him, but uh, grief is, it's, it's like constant eco-melancholia. I mean, melancholia is a grief that's like it can't be resolved. And so the eco-melancholia with how do we resolve the, the feelings of just watching the devastation and the continued devastation of the natural world and, and climate change and the, the stress, you know, every time I hear like, you know, bird populations are declining or... I feel it very deeply, and I feel it very deeply because I I I love those birds, and I and in the same way you you love your family and you love your your parents. It's just so that grief um really really 
carries through here in this collection and my first collection, Half-Life of Empathy. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And I was going to say, this is a theme in your work that is ever present. And 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 I, I want to, I guess, I want to just say that that from my standpoint, on the other side of the equation, grief, uncomfortable feelings around grief and loss and death, are something we have a really hard time talking about too. And and that that your collection and and, and others like it in this space of eco melancholia are, are asking us to bring those questions a little closer together. In other words, to say there's there's two sides to our repression. We might be repressing we not might be, we are <laughs> repressing our understandings of mortality in this society. We're, we're, I think, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, deeply sick in that way that we right. don't, that we don't allow ourselves the full sense of grief and loss and mourning. We don't talk about it publicly, but I think there's an analogy there that there's that for the people like you that feel that death of the a bird population as there are millions who don't think about it at all, that the distance and abstraction of environmental loss that keeps them from it emotionally might be one of the barriers to getting people to actually change behavior. Right. And, and so sitting with the grief as, as that's one of our modern cliches we've used, which I think is one of those cliches with deep meaning, like you have to sit with it. It's not something you can move through quickly. If you move through it too quickly, you're just repressing. So I think there is a deep analogy there in echo melancholia and our kind of, you know, again, I said sick, you know, rotten is I often say, but let's just say we're, we struggle with grief as well, just in our in our personal culture, in a society that tries to move us through it and and back to work as quickly as we can and, and back into our regular life as quickly as right. we can. We don't sit with that personal grief. Right. Yeah. I. And I also think we 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 aren't prepared for for you know how death goes. And you know, I was able to care for my father at the end of his life, um, which was a gift and also extremely hard, very hard. It's work. Yeah, and it, it's a trauma, you know, yeah. to have someone you, you love deeply become sick and, and die. And and after I was, I also had the, the mixed blessing of cleaning out his, his home and getting, you know, the last, um, the last things of his, his, the material things surrounding someone's life. And we, I don't feel like we, we have those conversations about how, how it all is supposed to go and how, you know, the support and all that, it's um, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah, we don't have a good story and we've lost track of some of our traditional stories about how it's supposed to go. That trans, speaking of transfer of knowledge, that transfer of knowledge about what that experience is like. Right. Yeah. Well, it's beautiful work. We'll hope that listeners will go take a deep dive into Rebecca Durham's work. And of course, from the graduate school perspective, we're just delighted that you're pushing through to this final project, which you'll, you'll be finishing in the next year. Yes, I hope to finish and defend in the fall. Yeah. So congratulations on the Bertha Morton Award, which we didn't talk about, but I mean, you know, listeners of this series will know about it. And did it have any particular resonance for you that you'd like to talk about, the Bertha Morton legacy itself? Um, yeah. So I, you know, I don't know tons about her life. Well, um, not, no one does, right? It's a right? little, it's a little <laughs> mysterious. Yeah. Right. But um, what really struck me is just how hard she worked and to have to be awarded this really just, it felt really good because so often I'm just, 
you know, I'm I'm a single parent. I'm I'm been in school. I'm, I'm I have a job. I, I just I kind of like I'm head down to the grindstone kind of thing. Like yeah. that's my mode. And so to be you know recognized that hey, like you've you know you've been working hard and you've 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 had these successes is is meant a really a lot to me. Fantastic, yeah. yeah, and that's I mean that is the birth of Morton legacy in a nutshell: hard work and commitment to service, and and your work I think exemplifies that. So congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> and thank you for joining us on Confluence, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Ashby. If you like what you've heard, you've got Kate Lloyd to thank. She's a student in our MFA program in media arts. Her deft ear and keen editing touch have created the sonic landscape through which you're floating. We'd like to thank UM's College of Arts and Media for providing studio space and talent to support this production. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, and intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana or click a link at the Confluence website, www.umt.edu slash grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float. Girl, I'll was not... And say it. From Pride and Prejudice. <laughs>